As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. David, I'm so glad that I can amuse you in such ways, my notes. Never look at my sermon notes, please. Uh, um, we are here in this short series, Life Together. We're talking about singing this morning, singing in worship. And so allow me to lead us in prayer briefly before we look at this passage uh, between David and Michael. Dear God, thank you for singing. Thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for baptism. Thank you, Lord, for all the things, all the tools you give us to worship you. Thank you that we are together, either in person or digitally, worshiping you together today. I pray over this sermon, this story that happened many hundreds of years ago, that we would be able to hear the goodness of God in it. We'd be able to see how we fall short, that we will be able to confess our conviction, receive forgiveness, and at the end, praise you all the more. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, John, uh, in his call to worship, covered uh, a lot of the things about music that are interesting. It's a part of the human design. Uh, music, uh, I listen to it when I'm at work, when I'm driving to work, when I'm on vacation, when I'm hanging out with friends. Music is really part of the human experience. And what is interesting about having the Bible uh, for us to draw information from is the Bible is the oldest written record of music on the planet. It's the oldest written record of music. And in the Bible, uh, biblical singing, assuming that they're singing in a biblical way, it always has a purpose. It always includes gratitude towards God. And so as we look at this question, as we sing, we come to this biblical narrative uh, between King David and his wife, Michael. Uh, before we get into the actual uh, nitty-gritty of the story, let's look at some background. What's happening in this story? 
at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel, David has finally become king. He's king over Israel. Now, that, that's not an instantaneous thing. It takes about seven and a half years from him taking the throne for all of Israel to be brought under his leadership. Um, but what's happening here is he, now the king, the rightful anointed king, is in the capital. He's in Zion, and there's one last thing to do. They must bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city. That's the last missing piece. What's so special about the Ark of the Covenant? It is to Israel the symbolic throne of God. Also, as a really helpful side note, when you open it, everyone whose eyes are open, their face melts. And so um, that, is, that is not true. That's, not, that's from a movie. Um, uh, and so uh, you, when you have, what's so special is when you have the, th the symbolic throne of God in the capital with the king on his throne, all is well with Israel. Worship and leadership happening from the same place. Israel's at peace. They're under the watchful eye of God. And so they have to bring it from the Nazi warehouse where it's stored. Um, that's also the last Indiana Jones reference, I promise. It's not in a Nazi warehouse. Back under the leadership of Saul, Saul used the ark like he used God to his own purposes. He brought the ark into battle. The, the Israelites were defeated. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. There's this awesome story about how God miraculously recovers the Ark from them. And, and from that time forward, it was stored in this city called Baleuda. You know the one. Um, and so at this point, what's happening is they are bringing the Ark from storage to the capital. And it says this earlier in 2 Samuel 6. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. It's a, a moment of great, great celebration. God and the king are together. The kingdom is united in that peace. And so they're employing music for what purpose? To praise God. To praise God for something that he has done. He did it. He rescued the ark. He preserved it. And now it's being brought to his holy city. His promises are true. This moment they've been waiting for is finally occurring. And so they have a reason to sing. Now this reason, this gratitude, this response and singing really is the same reason they worship. The, the reason to sing is the reason to worship. So at this point in the sermon, we're going to transition that question from why do we sing to really why do we worship together? Why do we worship together? What's the point of getting together and, and worshiping, as we might call it? Well, that's when we come to this story. And what God has done in the biblical text is given us a, a, a view of how David's worshiping, what it looks like, the components of those things, a reaction of someone who disagrees with his worship, and then a, a verdict on all of those things. Details. So let's take a look at the text. First, we're going to look at verses 16 through 19. Now, Michael is in, mentioned in this very early on. We'll come back to her in a moment, the wet blanket that she is, okay? And we're going to look at David, first of all, his worship in the text. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window, saw King David. What was he doing? Leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Back to worship. 
They brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to their own house. David is dressed, it says earlier in the passage, in a linen ephod, so he's dressed in common clothing, no kingly robes. He has this... He is a a person of God with the people of God worshiping their God. That's what's happening. The content of David's worship, he not only is celebrating God's promises, he's confessing sin. When it says here in the end of verse 17 that he's offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, that's what that's for, is to make atonement for sin. And so the idea here is that he's not simply asking for forgiveness in previous sin. He's actually consecrating their worship, meaning he knows their worship is imperfect. And so he's asking God to accept it anyway. The the whole, and David is leading the, the whole of Israel to embrace brokenness, embrace the brokenness of their worship. And so in the Bible, I say this as often as I can, there are two times that we should emulate Scripture, people in Scripture, not just Scripture, people in Scripture. So when we see someone doing something in the Scripture, if they are doing a sin, we should not do that sin. If they are repenting, we ought to repent of the same things. And so this is one of those moments where we can safely say, be like David. Be like David. David's repenting of his sins. He's repenting of imperfect worship. David continues, and what does he do? He blesses the people and sends them home with raisin cakes. That's a tasteful euphemism, but what's happening? Everyone's celebrating God's good gifts. They're they're enjoying God together. It's been a good day for Israel, and they're saying, thank you, God, in worship. To put it in common terms, I would say this. What's David doing? He's he's rolling around in his relationship with God. That's what we're seeing here. David is just David. David's enjoying music. He's singing and dancing to God. He's confessing his sin and in the front of everyone, joyfully participating in forgiveness of his sins. He is blessed by God and he's blessing others. And so like David, to be like David in this moment, his worship ought to look like our worship. Our worship ought to look like his. And what's his worship doing? His worship, our worship ought to be suitable response to God for his actions, his word, his promises, and his power. A suitable response. That's what worship is. Why are they singing? They are thankful for God. Why are they worshiping? They are thankful for what he has done, his promises, and his power. Now, we're going to dive into what this means for us as we sing and worship. But before we do that, again, let's throw a wet blanket on all this, okay? Let's look at Michael. In verse 16, just to kind of set the scene, if David is marching and dancing before the, 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 uh, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant as it enters a city and, and he's dancing and singing as it goes into the tent, Michael is up in the palace window looking down on the whole scenario. 
She's participating from afar. It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, and it's going to say the daughter of Saul three times, and the, the author of this passage wants you to remember that, okay? Looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. The author here, again, saying the daughter of Saul, wants to draw a, 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 a similarity. Saul used the Lord for his own purposes. Used the Lord for his own purposes. He worshiped God, he did, but he worshiped God by a set of self-serving rules. If you remember, Saul's last act as, as uh, um, uh, uh, approved king was to perform a sacrifice unlawfully. Samuel said, wait for me. And he said, well, time's running short. We got to have this battle. So he did it himself. And so it was worship. It wasn't that he was neglecting worship. He just was using it for his own purposes. And that's what caused him to be removed from the throne. And so in the same way, what's Michael doing? She's not participating. She's above the whole thing. She is using it for her other purposes, which we'll see in a moment. In short, she's embarrassed by David. She regarded him with contempt in her heart as she sees David worshiping, dancing, singing without his kingly robes. She thinks, what an idiot. What a fool. That's what she thinks in her heart. What an idiot. I cannot believe that this is the king of Israel. I, I enjoy verse 20 because what you have here is something that happens in a lot of marriages. Someone's coming home all jazzed up excited and what happens Michael goes out to meet him to punch him in the stomach basically all right happens both ways this is one of my spiritual gifts amen Julie okay she picks the best moment to criticize David so David returned to bless his household it's been a great night for Israel he returned home to bless his household but Michael the daughter of Saul there it is again came out to meet David and what did she say? How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I don't know where this comes from. David is not dancing naked. I think that's something that people have thought about. It's not, I mean, if you read the whole passage, he's wearing clothes. She's embarrassed by several things. Although she's doing her, she's communicating her embarrassment under the guise of sinfulness, her concern for God. That last passage, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself, that word vulgar means unprincipled, therefore sinful, meaning she, uh, the banner at which she is criticizing David is, you have sinned here today, sir. But what are her concerns? First, she's embarrassed and upset at his lack of formality. This whole idea of him uncovering himself, she thinks it is right for the king to worship only if he's wearing his kingly robes. Why? Because he's the king. And it befits his position. He ought to at least be wearing his vestments or his robes. She's also upset, as most scholars believe, that he's even down there in the first place. Where is she worshiping from up top where royalty belongs she's looking down thinking why is the king my husband even down there it's unfitting for him to be with the regular people to be accessible in this moment is shameful she hints at that a little bit with this idea of you're worshiping with the servants of female servants 
which really gets to the bottom of what she's worried about. She's worried about her reputation. She's worried about her reputation. What are the servants of our servants going to be talking about, David? What are they going to be talking about? The king worshiping with everybody else. She's worried about her reputation. David's response. I'm sure it was perfectly calm. David said to Michael, this is verses 21 and 22. It was before the Lord, he gets his jab in here, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by female servants, you want to talk about female servants of whom you have spoken? By them I shall be held in honor. What is the content, what is the content of his response? First, he compares himself to Saul. This is a reference to the idea that, that Michael is thinking about worship in God the same way her father did, and the irony of that is that is the reason Saul is no longer king. The way she's thinking about the rules and regulations and how it serves her and her reputation and how the king ought to act in regard to God so that it looks the right way, this is what Saul struggled with. I love this idea. In his response, he's at least lucid enough to call himself the prince over Israel. Think about what this means. What is the Ark of the Covenant? The symbolic throne of God. He's saying, God is king, I'm merely a prince. He's saying to Michael, you think too highly of me as the king of Israel. I am little more than a chosen prince over his people. I'm one of the people. Verse 22, if you had to put it in short terms, it is this, if celebrating God's goodness is wrong, I don't ever want to be right. That's what David says. If celebrating God's goodness is wrong, I don't ever want to be right. And then we come to verse 23, which is sad, but it's an illustration. It's an outward illustration of what's happening inwardly. Verse 23, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, that does not mean God struck her barren. What it means is there was no reproductivity between David and Michael. But if you recall in the Old Testament, blessings and punishments from a heavenly direction have a physical outward illustration. So take, for instance, uh, bondage of Israel. When God was displeased with their actions, what happened? They physically lost the land. When God was pleased with their actions in this moment, what happens? The king and the ark and God are all together. And so in this moment, this physical outpouring of no children is a, a physical symbol of what was happening spiritually. This kind of idea of worship, the text is saying, is spiritually barren. It has no fruit. It has no reproductivity. So what are we really dealing with here? What are we dealing with with this marital disagreement where one's worshiping one way, one's worshiping another way, they're having an argument about it? What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a couple different things. We're dealing with David worshiping from his relationship with God and Michael worshiping God through a system called religion. So relationship versus religion. We have a group, uh, we have Michael who is um, uh, 
worshiping from a, a worry about her reputation, so more of a horizontal concern, and we have David who's worshiping as a response to what God has done, a vertical concern. David worshiping God out of relationship when we know who God is, when we see what he has done, when we see and understand the lengths that God has gone to in Jesus Christ to save us for himself, when we know that God is good and we taste that goodness, at least part of us can't help but respond to it. Respond to it. In that moment, when we respond to God's goodness, when we respond to that relationship, that is worship. That's worship. And you have Michael trapped in religion, trapped in her own reputation, trapped in this horizontal concern. And so worship to her is being committed to a system of rules. This is how it ought to be. Worship of God becomes more about practice than experience. And so what she's doing with David truly is trying to enforce on him, actually punish him really, for participating in a style of worship and under the guise that she's concerned with the sacredness of worship. But really, what is it? She's saying, you are not doing it the right way, in my opinion. That's what she's saying. Now, let's just be real for a second. I'll take a good long drink for this, okay? This church is a Presbyterian church. We're a Presbyterian church. So if we all of us had to diagnose ourselves based on this story, would we be more like David or more like Michael? Don't answer. The answer is yes. There's some ways, praise the Lord, we are like David. And there's a lot of ways that we are like Michael. How are we like Michael? Let me ask some questions. Do we tend to have a set of rules that must be followed now, I'm not talking about the regulative principle. I'm talking about other rules besides that. Let's talk about songs, okay? A fun topic for all of us, songs. Are, are there a certain set of songs that must be sung or should be sung? Are we looking at the date of the song, the, the speed of the song? Are we looking at everything but the content of the song and saying, well, it's not just the content. Does it bring glory to God? Is it from Scripture? Is it scriptural? But it's all these other things. Do we have those kinds of rules? Oftentimes, we do. As Reformed people, do we prefer, at times, a formalized, careful version of worship over an emotionally responsive form of worship? Yes, we do. We do. And when we differ from others, as a, as a Reformed Presbyterian whole, do we tend at times to harshly judge others who worship differently? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All of us, in some way or another. Before we begin to despair, what parts of our worship reflects David, David's worship? Here's a list of the things that he does in this passage that are good. Use this list to diagnose your own heart. Ideal worship, according to this passage, includes confessing our need and our sinfulness openly. 
confessing our need and our sinfulness openly. David didn't say, oh, that was great, and we were perfect, and then confess it privately. He did the offering right there, showing that he needed brokenness, showing that everyone they needed brokenness. Do we accept forgiveness and grace enthusiastically? Because guess what? It is an enthusiastic thing to receive grace for our sin. Are we blessing those around us with the joy of our excitement about God and his gospel? The question then would be, well, how can we worship more like that? How can we individually, we all suffer from this, Christian, how can we all free ourselves in worship from the shackles of religion? First of all, We must, as David did here, worship God out of relationship. That's the antidote to religion, is relationship. Yes, this is great news for us. Worship of God starts starts with our intellect. It starts with our, we have to understand who God is and what he has done. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. When we understand what he has done, we're meant to move into those truths in a living relationship, a personal connectedness with Jesus. And so when we are called to worship God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, we're called not just to worship with our intellect, but with our emotions, our voices, our body. That's what we're called to do. So it starts worshiping out of relationship, and it continues by having the courage to respond to that relationship while we're together, which includes the the repentance of our horizontal thinking and embrace of our vertical commitment. Here's some examples. If what God has done for you is communicated, it's okay to let out your appreciation of that. It's okay. You're not going to burst into flames. I promise. Maybe some other reason. We have a lot of kids playing with stuff around here. Who knows if they have a lighter? But it won't be because you let it out. When that gospel truth that you personally needed to hear is communicated, it's okay to say amen. It's okay. John, come on, no, just kidding. You don't do that here, sir. Okay. Listen, continue the controversy. If that song lyric is hitting you right where you need it this week, it's okay to raise your hand and reach out to God. No one's going to take your picture and post it on Raising Hand Pariah Facebook, although that'd be a great website, okay? Christine's going to start it, so... Beware. Here's on the other side. If you're like me, and when you are forced to clap in church, it makes you think of only the tempo and not God's goodness, don't clap. Don't clap. And when we come to this situation between Michael and David, there's two situations at play. If anyone is distracted by those things... Like Michael was. She was distracted by those things. She looked down and said, what an idiot. What is he doing? We must confess 
that horizontal concern, that is a reputational concern if we are worried about that. And what we do after we repent is we freely accept forgiveness and we praise God all the more for it. We're not perfect in our worship. We're not perfect in our worship. So if we're afraid of distracting others, we must let that go. We must. On the other side, if we are someone who is distracted by others, maybe it's what they're wearing. Maybe it's the song that we're singing. Is it too slow? Is it too fast? Is it the year that it comes from? Is it the style of worship, the instruments we use? If any of those things serve as a distraction, I'd like to say this about myself. It is highly likely I am bringing ungodly criticism to my worship. Ungodly criticism. And what do we do if that's the case? We confess our horizontal concerns, we freely accept forgiveness, and we praise God all the more. That's the answer. So why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we come to the Lord's table? Why do we listen to me preach a sermon or whoever's up here? We do those things to focus on the Lord and his goodness, and then we respond with enthusiasm to the great things he's done. That's what it's for. It's why we do it. And I think that leaves us in a really great spot this morning for our emphasis for what the Lord's Supper should be about. David understood this clearly. And I believe that this is why he was a man after God's own heart. He understood that he was a needy person. He was needy. Not like, oh, pay attention to me, but like, I am broken. We are all broken fully, materially. Our bodies are broken. Our emotions are broken. Our relationships are broken. Our spirituality broken. We need Jesus in every layer of our lives. We're needy. And all of those needs are met in one place at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not called to meet them on our own. God doesn't call us to meet them halfway. He says, come to me, those who have no money, and eat. Come to me, those who have a burden, and I will give you rest. And so at the cross of Christ, at the Lord's table, we're reminded as we eat this little morsel of bread, even the food we eat is from God. The, the drink we drink comes from our Lord God. Relationally, as we walk together, we're given brothers and sisters in eternity that we walk beside even now. Emotionally, the only comfort in this life, I hate to say it, but I love to say it at the same time, it's found nowhere else but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Intellectually, only God meets our need. We're given this infinite God, we're given his word to study him, and it can keep us engaged for the entirety of our lives. And spiritually, spiritually, most of all, we have no hope outside the cross of Jesus Christ. No hope. And so we come to the Lord's table and we recognize every need we have is met in Jesus. First Corinthians 11 
talks about how we are living participants in the gospel, and it says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we announce broadly the death of our Lord Jesus until he comes. And so this morning when we ask the question, who should come, who should eat, if you believe that you are needy and that Jesus Christ is the only person who can meet those needs, you've made that profession, you've been baptized, come and get it, the Bible says. Proclaim that truth by eating the bread and drinking the cup. Which also puts this other line in place Paul in that same passage says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And so this morning, if you don't believe that your needs are met by Jesus, it does not make sense for you to come and eat. You're eating the wrong meal. (laughs) You're saying, I don't need this. And so the Bible says to not participate. Let's take a few moments of self-examination and silent prayer. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute. But let's examine ourselves in this moment before we participate. Father in heaven, if we're to worship well this morning, we must all conclude, we must all repent of the fact that we all bring ungodly criticism to our worship. We are critical people, with critical hearts. We all struggle with self-righteousness, thinking the way we do things is better than the way anyone else does things, and the way things ought to be done is the way we think they ought to be done. And so in this moment, Before we participate in the meeting of our needs at the Lord's table, we say, that's me. Forgive me. And joyously we come knowing that our sin has been killed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise your name. I do pray this morning that as we participate It can be challenging at times if we eat the Lord's Supper every week for it to be unique, for it to be meaningful. But I pray this morning, Lord, that we would come forward and we would in our own way know that you are meeting our needs, that we would see and feel and believe the promise made in this meal. Bless the bread, knowing that your body was broken and what that means for me, for us. As we drink the cup, may we remember that it covers a multitude of sins And that promise is for us and includes the ones we've committed as we worshiped today. And may we respond with enthusiastic joy to the fact that we broken sinners are welcome at the Lord's table without cost. I pray these things in the name of whom none of this would be possible without, in the name of the eternal Son of God, God in the flesh, our Savior crucified and risen and ascended and returning, Jesus Christ. Amen.